Hey there, before we get started, just want to let you know today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is in partnership with the Gold Investment Letter, helping sophisticated investors successfully navigate capital markets and maximize profits in gold, silver, and mining stocks. GIL discovers the most undervalued companies and isolates special situations in the mining sector for their members. Breaking down unique topics such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends with a goal of drastically improving investment returns. Sign up for this free e-letter for immediate action. Goldinvestmentletter.com I'm really excited to talk to David Matten, who came onto my radar screen from his amazing newsletter, New World, Saying Humans. And I could see that he was deep in the rabbit hole of not only the technology, but the philosophy, what was happening to society, how it interacts with humans. So I really wanted to sit down with him and dig into this exponential age thesis that I've got to see how he thinks about it. Because I think he's going to be a great guide for us in the future in how we deal with this and what it means to us, how we invest in it, and how we can take advantage of it and the risks involved too. When change comes, opportunity abounds. We're about to enter a period of the fastest pace of technological change in all human history, something we refer to as the exponential age. And Real Vision is going to be your guide to this incredible future. David, fantastic to get you back on Real Vision. It's so good to be back. How are you? I am great. Excited to talk. Likewise, how could we not be? It's 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 exciting times, if terrifying. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into all of that. Let's kick off first by giving a bit of background about yourself, um, what you do, how you got to what you're doing, and then we'll start digging into some of your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, uh, my deep, deep background in a previous lifetime is journalism, but it became, this is in the early 2000s, it became apparent to me that the big story of our lifetimes would be technology. Then 2007, 2007 happened, the iPhone. It feels ancient history now, obviously. And I've spent the last look, sort of 10, 15 years just looking out to the world out there, trying to make sense of where we're at now and crucially where we're heading, what, what our collective destiny, our collective future looks like. And really that takes two forms these days. I write as you know, I write this newsletter, New World, Same Humans, and that's a kind Which of- Which is such a great name, I love that. Thank you. I think it's, I think even 40 years uh, hence, when all this is done and dusted, it will probably still be my proudest achievement. The name, the name, which is of course a reference to same shit, different day. Um, so New World, Same Humans is a kind of ongoing diary of my attempts to make sense of, of, of what's happening and where we're all heading. Um, and then I, off the back of that, I speak to organizations, you know, in various forms. I, I engage with large organizations who want to make sense of where, where this is all going. And that can range from, look, very, very short-term changes in consumer behavior and consumer mindset, all the way up to the sorts of things you're more interested in, you know, long-run, long-term megatrends, structural decade-on-decade -decade shifts, emerging technologies, that are reshaping what the future looks like. And that 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 is enough to keep me busy. So what kind of framework do you use to understand this world? Because everybody's spinning to figure out what framework can they use? How, 
What's your mental model here? Yeah, I mean, my fundamental mental model is 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 encapsulated by that title, New World, Same Humans, which is essentially, look, when we try to make sense of the of the future of what where we're heading, we know that right now, the primary force reshaping our shared future is technology. We're in the middle of a technology revolution. There's a tendency to fixate on the technologies themselves, on the shiny latest thing, and we all know what the shiny latest thing is right now. We'll talk about that soon. Um, when you view technologies in isolation, that's very limiting. It, it doesn't really tell us much about much that's meaningful or useful about the future. Simply to say, you know, there's going to be AI. There's going to be even more AI in the future. I'm trying to look at the collision between these emerging technologies and human beings. And that gives us a very powerful anchor because there's a huge amount of chaotic, apparently random change out there. No one's in control of it. You know, no one's no one's no one's steering the big ship that is technological change. It's just unfolding human beings fundamentally are motivated by a set of needs that don't really change decade on decade, even century on century, you know, value, convenience, security, status. I'm looking at the collision between those two things. In the collision between emerging technologies and fundamental human needs, my contention is that's where you can see the future unfolding. That's where meaningful new trends emerge. I will put one caveat on that quickly. And we could do a whole session on this one day. Look, is that framework about to break down? Certainly, it's being profoundly challenged by the idea, which feels ever more imminent, that we are about to merge with our technologies. And for the first time in history, we simply won't be the same humans anymore. It, it, it won't be a case of this, this stable entity called the human being with a fundamental set of needs that we, we understand that we've lived with for you know, thousands of years, colliding with technology. Technology will have turned us into something new. And look, I'm I, okay, I'm prepared, I'm prepared for my chat for my for my framework to be challenged, and I'm prepared for there to be a big second uh, chapter of the newsletter that uh, addresses that because I think I'm reluctantly being persuaded that that is what is about to unfold, that the nature of the human itself is about to change, which is very what, hard to make sense of. What the hell do you mean by that? Because pe people are trying to get their heads around what's happening. What, what do you think yeah. when you talk about the nature of humans changing? I mean, look, two, two, two big technologies emerging that look as though they are about to turn us into something else. And of course, we have to be very careful when we talk in this way, because we tend to, and I'm guilty of this myself, we tend to talk about technologies impacting all of us equally. They won't impact all of us equally. They won't turn everyone into, into something other than the humans we're used to. But they may turn a very small number of people at first into something other. What are these two technologies? Well, you know, look at what Elon Musk is doing with Neuralink, and others are doing the same sorts of things. Are we about to put chips into the brains of human beings, you know, very simply that allow them to um, to interact with computation, with computers, simply by thinking about it? If we're about to do that, and then if you combine that with, you know, cloud-based access to incredible machine intelligence, is what you have left at the end of that. 
the same old human that I like to, to write about, the same old human colliding with technology. Not, not really. I think you've, 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 you've created a cyborg. You've turned human beings into something else. The other big technology, and we, again, we can talk about this at length, that's about to do something like that is CRISPR. I mean, I've been writing in the newsletter, you know, genetic technologies. I'm talking about the life sciences here. I've been writing in the newsletter about CRISPR for a long time. Just a, a couple of months ago, a absolutely astounding new research development, an evolution of the CRISPR technique that is now being called PASTE that allows you to essentially cut and paste much larger amounts of genetic information into the genome. So instead of sort of tinkering, you can you can significantly alter the human genome in a cut and paste fashion. And this is incredible. And on multiple levels, it's just brilliant news because it means you can you, we can now start to look at doing things like editing out cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis is, you know, it is manifest across a complex number of, you know, a large and complex number of genes. We can start to think now about cutting all of them out and replacing them. But look. What else are we going to cut and replace? I wrote a couple of weeks ago about a Pew Research survey saying, what was it? But somewhere between 30 and 40% of Americans would consider genetic ma manipulation of their child if it made the child more likely to get into Harvard. So, so, so the idea that, you know, genetic enhancement, genetic manipulation of the human genome will be whole, held back by this tsunami of sort of moral disapproval doesn't doesn't look it doesn't look like that will hold water you know but people unsurprisingly i mean that's where you're, you you know that's where it does tap back to the same old humans people relentlessly seek advantage seek advantage for their offspring self enhancement advantage to our offspring these are eternal human impulses so look it's still a useful framework for understanding how these things are going to play out but long run are we heading towards a future where we've changed ourselves, we've changed what humans are, I used to be reluctant to accept that. And I, I, it's still hugely complex, hard to make any practical or moral sense of, but reluctantly I'm starting to concede that, look, yes, we are. Some kind of great divergence is imminent, where you have homo, you know, 100,000 years ago, two, three, 400,000 years ago, you had various different species of various different lines of the human family. We've had an unusual situation for the last 100,000 years or so, just one, just one line, Homo sapiens. Are we about to diverge again? This time that divergence will be mediated by technology. We've gone very philosophical very quickly. Just a reminder, the Real Vision Daily Briefing is in partnership with the Gold Investment Letter, helping sophisticated investors successfully navigate capital markets and maximize profits in gold, silver, and mining stocks. GIL discovers the most undervalued companies and isolates special situations in the mining sector for their members, breaking down unique topics such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends with a goal of drastically improving investment returns. Sign up for this free e-letter for immediate action. Goldinvestmentletter.com. I know, but these are the questions that people actually are trying to think about. Like Noah Harari, who wrote Sapiens, also wrote Homo Deus, which was his philosophy yeah. is we either merge with the machines or potentially the machines 
rule the world. We'll come on to a bit of that in a sec. Um, now, people are going to be listening to this, say, oh, David, he's just full of shit. He's a wide-eyed, optimistic technologist. How far away is Neuralink from doing some of this stuff and others? Because that's what people don't realize is how close a lot of this stuff is. Yeah, it's it's happening now. You know, I mean, Neuralink is Neuralink and, and other companies, other organizations are putting chips into the brains of human beings that allow those human beings to communicate by thought with a computer. You know, and their first use case is around, and again, this is this is brilliant news, is around paralyzed people, people, you know, profoundly paralyzed, unable to move essentially any any parts of their body. This is a, this is a, this is, it goes without saying, a, a profoundly life-changing technology for them. Um, but it's happening now. Look, yeah, you know, I mean, multiple, multiple years, decades before, you know, you, you're you're walking into Boots, the pharmacist on the high street, and um, and 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 looking at getting this sort of thing, you know, put into your head. I'm not. It's very, very hard to know when how that plays out, and there are all kinds of issues there around, you know, regulation and social mores that 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 complicate the kind of mainstreaming of that of that sort of technology but the technology exists now and it's not going away it's not going to be put back into the bottle we can't control it you know we can't control crispr i mean a, a doctor in china edited explain crispr to people because some people hear the term but don't really know what it means yeah it's it's a it's a form of it it's a it's a way to to genetic to edit genes it's a way to cut and paste genes to to splice out a gene and replace it with another gene because they've kind of scientists now kind of think of the human genome as a software program right and so therefore you can edit the program and change it right exactly and and what are you doing what are you doing then if not changing changing the human changing what it means to be a human and we're going you know we're on the eve of an incredible run of 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 interventions in the life sciences of medical interventions based on the ability to identify genes to understand the the action of genes and combinations of genes in the body but not only that then to change them to edit them out um, and that's going to be profoundly influenced. And again, we'll talk about this by, you know, machine learning, by AI that, well, that enables uh, us to understand all this. Yeah, I was going to come on to that because, you know, speaking to some friends at Google and others, they're like, once you put this AI together with CRISPR, you get to solve things at, you know, a, a thousand X or 10,000 yes. X the speed and do things that weren't possible before. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to we're going to run out of computational power you know we can talk about this i mean this is one of the this is one of the long run trends i'm obsessed with you know moore's law that we've we've kind of leaned on so heavily for the last 6 or 7 decades is is starting to fade away but but quantum computing is is rising to meet that challenge um and quantum computing which which you know turns computational tasks of the order of 
millions of years right now into seconds, billions of years right now into days, will have a profound influence on our ability to understand the human genome, to do these things in the life sciences, to model new therapeutic um, molecules, to, to, to understand protein folding, because you have billions and billions of billions, the type of computational problems where you have billions and billions and billions of possibilities. And right now, you just have to compute them one at a time. And if you have that many, it's going to take you 50 million years. We'll be able to do that with quantum computing. Um, in a day. Uh, and that will fuel an incredible revolution in the life sciences. Look, to go back to, to earlier, I understand why when you talk about the future, you talk about these technologies coming down the track. One of the one of the yeah, one of the criticisms you will meet is, oh, you're a wild eyed utopian, you know, you've drunk the Kool-Aid. I haven't, I really haven't, I promise you, drunk any Kool-Aid. This is going to be no, because at core you're a miserable journalist. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. I mean, I don't want to. You know, I'm here in London. I, you know, I'm I'm very British. I drink a lot of tea. I'm deeply sceptical, Raoul. Um, that's that's where I that's where I come from. A lot of this. It's going to be hugely disruptive. It's going to challenge our most fundamental thinking on. I mean, yeah, like yes, the economy, yes, jobs you know, all of that, but our most fundamental thinking on what it means to be a human being, what is a human being for? What do we really value? What is the point of us? What are we? Huge, huge challenges coming down the track. All I'm saying is they're coming down the track. Um, we, you, can, you, can tr you can try and ignore it. Good luck. Yeah, so, so we've talked a bit about CRISPR and quantum, and I'm going to tie this all together in a bit. But let's talk about because some people may not have seen you on real vision daily briefing but i think a lot of people were shocked by that is the ai thing has happened right it's this fucking nuclear bomb that's turned up mm -hmm. talk us through the state of ai now and then kind of peek a little bit into the future if possible with where that's going yeah i mean it, it's just been the most incredible time to be alive and time to be watching technology across the last 24 months or so. You know, OpenAI, a research institute, machine intelligence, taking money now from Microsoft, funded by Microsoft, they released this large language model GPT-3 a couple of years ago. Okay, I think I think most people even don't quite realize that. GPT-3 is, is only 24 months ago. It really caught fire with chat GPT, where they simply took GPT-3, they improved it a little bit, and they made it so you could have a back and forth conversation. And this thing, as you well know, and I'm sure lots of people out there listening to this do know, it just generates eerily human, compelling, you know, sensical text outputs. And it's incredibly flexible. You know, write me a poem about the Muppets flying to Mars. Tell me the sports results from, you know, the weekend um, and, and and summarize them for me in three paragraphs. Take this 1,000 page document and give it to me in two sentences. This thing is incredibly flexible. There have been rumors about when GPT-4 would be released. I, again, was skeptical about those. Perhaps there's a theme emerging. Um, it came last week and GPT-4 is multimodal so it's a generative ai that can make sense of text inputs but it can make sense of visual inputs too i mean look as i said on the daily briefing you know the, the breakthrough moment for me in in the gpt4 demonstration was when when their guy sketched literally sketched you know a web page on his on his uh, notebook that looked something like this if you can see that 
I mean, literally, you know, with, with some writing, obviously, but nothing more than that, gave it to GPT-4, didn't even have to issue an instruction. GPT-4 just said to itself, oh, that's a web page. Clearly, you want me to build it, built the web page and gave it back to him. It was a web page that, uh, that, that offered you jokes and you could press a button and get a new joke. The AI even wrote the jokes as well. Uh, so, so literally, what have we just seen? We've just seen the friction between draw a sketch in my notebook and get a fully functioning web page in 20 seconds sent to zero. The friction between those two things has now disappeared entirely. We are, we are emerging into a world thanks to generative AI, so-called because they, it generates new outputs, it generates novel outputs into the world, text, image, music, whatever. But a world thanks to generative AI where we can simply imagine something, describe it in natural language very simply, or draw a picture of it, and it will be made real before our eyes. It is very hard to make sense of what that means for knowledge worker productivity, for what knowledge work even is, for how human creativity interacts with that. These are all the sorts of things I'm trying to work through. Um, and I know you are too. And like you say, I mean, num number one, perhaps, it's the most deflationary event ever. In like, I mean, so many expensive domains of human activity that have remained incredibly impervious to, to falling prices via technology. You know, being a lawyer, being a doctor, being a teacher, healthcare, very expensive hands-on domains of intellectual labor that we haven't really been able to touch that much with technology. You know, you still need that lawyer sitting there, pouring over the documents, writing the contract. We haven't been able to automate that away. Well, guess what? We just we just did with GPT-4. It's, it's like interesting. Said, the nuclear bomb on that kind of work. Yeah, I mean, I saw the comments section after the Real Vision Daily Briefing, and there's still so much skepticism where people are like, well, it can't do a doctor yet. I'm like, A, GPT-4 is a massive model. Just because chat GPT doesn't do it doesn't mean the model can't. So you can build a lot on the model. Secondly, it's still improving. Yeah. So if yeah. you think of the speed of improvements, I mean, there is no way that it's not going to be able to just diagnose some kid in a village in India instantaneously and give it expert advice yeah, and do, yeah. their, and do the accounting, exactly. do the legal work. Exactly. I mean, Google have Palm, their large language model. They fine-tuned it on, 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 you know, a corpus of medical knowledge to create something called MedPalm. Just a few days ago, they released, a couple of weeks ago maybe, they released MedPalm 2, which kind of got lost in all the GPT-4 noise. But MedPalm 2 performs at expert level on medical exams. Um, it, it does better than most human medical students. The, the vast majority of human medical students on medical exams. So we're already there. Now, look, it can just give you advice. Often you need a doctor to do more than just say stuff to you, clearly. Right? But there, it's still an incredible advance uh, with hugely powerful use case implications. And as you say, like, Raoul, we're, we're like, we're two years deep into this. I mean, there's so much further left to go. Like, like, yeah, I mean, I saw one comment, you know, someone very legitimately was saying, look, these things still, they get stuff wrong, you know, they hallucinate, it's now being called that, you know, factually, yes, apps, factually, they can be incorrect. You know, we're going to, GPT-4 is already far less factually incorrect than ChatGPT, which wasn't bad, by the way. Um, we're going to iron out those problems fine-tuning and other techniques 
will enable these models to be approaching perfect when it comes to factual knowledge and and some of the other problems they face and it's accelerating so quickly i mean like i said on on the live show you know this is this is a this is a turning of the order of the gutenberg press the gutenberg press took it took 50 years before there were 1000 across europe it took about 380 years for that innovation to travel the world it eventually got to the Pacific Islands, like 400 years after it was invented. 1.2 billion people are just about to smash into GPT-4 and generative AI because Microsoft's going to in integrate them in Office 365 all at once. And we've never, this is a live experiment in, in economic disruption of a magnitude that we've never seen before. I mean, Microsoft feel like they're going for the jugular. I mean, yeah. I mean that's a hell of a big thing to do to have a technology that everyone's a little bit scared of because it's so powerful and we don't yet know what it can do and throw it into the largest software application on earth and say, here it is for everybody. I agree. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft just, it feels like overnight, clearly it's not overnight because they've been cooking this stuff up for a while, but you know, overnight have just become one of the most exciting technology companies on the face of the planet all over again. I mean, it really was hard to imagine that, you know, a decade ago, Microsoft were the equivalent of, I don't know, and I don't want to insult anyone out there like Volvo or something, like just a very safe, very mundane, very, very you know, totally ubiquitous. Uh, yeah. And look, look at, you know, thanks to their relationship with OpenAI, look at them now. And they, I, I, in my view, they're taking a huge risk and they clearly feel it's it's kind of this or nothing. We're exactly as you say. We're going to go for the jugular. We're going to roll this stuff out. No one knows how that's going to play out. You know, are there going to be serious teething problems? Are going to are people going to misuse this? Are they not going to be able to use it? Are there going to be errors? Are there going to be outages? Like yes, 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 on, on all those fronts. But they're they're clearly prepared to take that risk to to steal a march on Google, and they have. You know, you can see Google slightly panicking. Thanks for joining us today. Just a reminder, the Real Vision Daily Briefing is in partnership with the Gold Investment Letter, helping sophisticated investors successfully navigate capital markets and maximize profits in gold, silver, and mining stocks. GIL discovers the most undervalued companies and isolates special situations in the mining sector for their members, breaking down unique topics such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends, with a goal of drastically improving investment returns. Sign up for this free e-letter for immediate action. Goldinvestmentletter.com Well, yes, I mean, they, they hit the kind of, you know, code red or the red button. But Google are more conservative because they've been developing a lot of this in-house. And I think they got terrified by the technology that they've built and they're like, whoa, 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 slow down. And Microsoft's like, fuck it, let's go for it. Yeah. As is stability AI, it's like it's going to force everybody to release everything as fast as possible in a race for dollars in a way that humanity's not going to be able to deal with. No, no, it's it's not it, it's not really going to be able to deal with it. And Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, he he's he's he, he is rather having his cake and eating it on the responsibility front because, I mean, incredible guy, absolutely incredible guy, but he's talking a lot about releasing this gradually when we're ready for it. And, you know, 
being extremely responsible and thinking a lot about the impacts, but at the same time, Microsoft, which basically is open AI at this stage, or you might want to put it the other way around. Microsoft are just about to throw this at the entire global knowledge worker class all in one go. And I'm like, how exactly is that gradual and responsible? Um, on the other hand, uh, yeah, I don't I don't know if there's much to be done about keeping this thing under the bonnet until everyone's ready for it and all this kind of stuff. And look, you know, as much as uh, as much as as I'm extremely mindful of this, the disruption that's coming and it's going to be extremely painful and weird. Weird is probably the best word. Um, this is an incredible tool for human amplification. Yes, these tools hallucinate. Yes, they instantiate all the prejudices and assumptions and broken thinking that is part of our legacy as humans, and they're going to spit that back at us. And that's going to be distressing and toxic, and it's going to be false. It's going to be disinformation sometimes. Can we, can we grow as human beings and deal with that and work our way through it and find what is going to be incredible about these technologies or do we just want to sort of lock them away in a cupboard and and say oh you know it, because it's gonna because it's going to cause trouble we can't touch it i don't think that is right i don't think it's workable it's, it's not going to happen so yeah we're left we're left with the disruption and i mean this ta again taps into stuff we said on the live show which was such fun by the way you know our governments are not in the driving seat they're not anywhere near the driving seat. What What is the overriding force shaping our collective destiny now? It's not the guy sitting in the White House or the guy sitting in Downing Street. It's not policymakers. It's this incredible white hot technology revolution that is reshaping the world around us faster than any of us can comprehend. Uh, governments, as the rest of us, scrabbling to react to that. Interesting, Emad, one of his points is like, this is gonna be, this is gonna dwarf the dot-com bubble because there's thousands of businesses being built. We don't know what's gonna survive, what's gonna win, how much is gonna to accumulate to Google, Apple, Microsoft, um, um, Amazon, all of these players who all have strategies. So it's going to be a ludicrous boom, probably a bust as well, before you know we start hitting stuff like GPT-7 when, the world has entirely changed because it becomes yeah. AGI. So talk us a bit about AGI because that's when, you know, we go from generative to something that thinks in a broader yeah. sense and is better than humans at pretty much every single aspect. Yes, yes, exactly. And to understand the real meaning of of AGI, artificial general intelligence. It just pays to have to, to have a very quick look back at, at machine intelligence and how it's evolved across the last few decades. What has machine intelligence been good at, you know, historically across the decades? Highly structured, domain-specific tasks with a very clear set of rules and a very clear procedural technique that can be applied. Like, and this is something Ahmad spelled out so beautifully in his first interview with you. You know, in the uh, in the 90s, when an AI beat the world chess champion for the first time, this incredible achievement in machine intelligence. How did that, how did that AI beat Gary Kasparov? It beat him because chess is a game. With a with a that's literally domain specific. You have a board, you know, 64 little squares in one big square. You have very clear rules. And this AI just did it by 
knowing those rules. So we taught it the rules to begin with. We literally said, here are the rules of chess there. And then this AI can just perform calculations way, 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 way faster than any human being. So it can just game out every single move, every single position and choose the best one. And then you make your move. And then it does that all over again. And it's just crunching, crunching, crunching huge numbers of moves. Very domain specific, very rule bound. We're on a journey towards machine intelligence that is much more flexible than that that doesn't have to be so rule bound and that we don't have to teach rules to that it, it can machine intelligence that can discern patterns that emerge out of complex situations. That's the big revolution that is machine learning, that is neural networks. And generative AI, these transformer models, are built on top of neural networks. They're a version of neural of a neural network. Okay, so now we have an AI with with these transformer models that are fueling things like GPT-4, where you can just throw a huge amount of unstructured data at the AI, tell it nothing about that data, give it no rules or anything, and it will just go and go and absorb that data and draw down rules of its own. It will spot incredibly nuanced, complex, submerged patterns existing within that data. And that's that's what GPT-4, the language model, is has done. It's gone and read almost everything on the internet, or a huge amount, an appreciable segment of all the text that's ever existed. And it's discerned deep underlying patterns in the structure of language that enable it to take, a, take some language you've given it and then predict what the next language should be. That's what it's doing. What's the next step to finally get to AGI? It's, a, it's machine intelligence that is, that is truly flexible across multiple domains in the way human beings are so that you can set it loose on an entirely unstructured environment, physical environment, intellectual environment, and it will just set about making sense of that environment itself. And it will be able to do that you know, across text, across image, across all domains of, of sensory input too. But because it's also fueled by the incredible calculative and processing power of a machine, of a computer, it will, it will have that also. So it'll be far faster than us at calculating, far deeper than us. And you'll have something that, that has the incredible recursive flexibility of the, of the human brain combined with the incredible raw processing power of a machine. And that's where you have, in, a, in essence, a kind of superhuman intelligence, a super person. <laughs> um, and that is, you know, a, how far away are we from that? It's very, very hard. So to Mo, Mo Gordat, who was the kind of head of Google X um, and the labs there, he thinks it's 2029. He's like, Things are moving so fast that AI will be smarter than any human at any task by the end of this decade. Yeah, I mean uh, that that's a, a and that accords with a set of um, predictions. You know, people like Ray Kurzweil were trying to look at this back in the '90s and drawing curves of, of of processing power and increasing flexibility of machine intelligence, saying things like 2029. You know, yeah, the 2030s, 2035. It's it's incredibly hard to say, and and I suspect it will also be incredibly hard to say when we've got there, 
Um, we're going to start to approach multimodal transformer models like GPT-4 that across multiple domains are so are so flexible and are so intelligent that for that for all intents and purposes and for many of the intellectual tasks and knowledge worker tasks that we do day to day it's like a super intelligent human you know now could you sort of drop it in the middle of a field and just leave it and let it figure out maybe not you know maybe it's not as adaptable and as infinitely flexible as a human being but most of the time that's not going to matter you know and then and then the other crucial thing just very quickly that people get all caught up in with agi is you know when we talk about um a universal general intelligence of that nature. We're not we're not saying, and it's not in any way necessary that this thing is conscious. You know, people tend to couple those two things. We're, we're very accustomed to the only truly sort of higher form of intelligence on the planet, humans, being also conscious beings. So people believe that the two, they, they, they don't articulate it to themselves, but they naturally believe the two necessarily go together. They don't necessarily go together. You can be ultra, ultra, um, intelligent across and, and hugely flexible across that without being conscious, whatever that means, really, we don't really know as well. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it, we're not saying these things will have personhood, um, but we are saying they will be super intelligent, better at a human than every, in, at every intellectual task that we, that we can offer. So I'm going to break this down into this, this, three paths, two paths. And so the first part is, okay, so we've now augmented humans. We've given them the ability to find answers instantaneously, not like Google search, but by asking a mentor essentially, which is GPT. It'll take, as you said, video, it'll take photographs, it'll take anything and turn it into stuff, right? That's the power of imagination. We can we can be immensely productive for those with the imagination because yeah. the computer, the AI doesn't have the imagination. So we have to drive the imagination. So then we've got CRISPR technology and other longevity sciences. So humans are going to be smarter or have more productivity from the knowledge base economy. They're going to probably live longer and healthier. Okay. But that's all pretty good. Um, then we've got Neuralink's let's assume not ready yet. But let's assume we've got wearable devices and those will keep getting closer to Neuralink. I mean, that's where it's all going. So wearable devices, monitoring our health at all points, you know, it can completely go directly to a doctor who can tell you you've got an issue coming. You know, again, health, longevity, intelligence, and then we've got robots. And robots are almost ubiquitous already. They just don't look like humans yet. But Optimus and Boston robotics and a bunch of these people have got you know a moving towards that human humanoid robot yeah. idea where you can then give it the artificial intelligence and you can have it around your house or in your office or in your workplace or anywhere including on mars doing tasks for you um so how i look at this point where we are now and we'll get into the doom later this is a renaissance for humanity. We become immensely productive. We live longer. We live healthier. We can do more things, create more units of output, add to that stuff like an energy revolution that will come, the cost of energy comes down, computational power 
has to improve and move, whether it's whether it's from distributed computing or whether it's quantum computing. You know, there's ways of extending Moore's law and then you can change it with quantum. So to me, when I look at this, I just think, okay, yes, society is going to struggle, but yes, humanity probably gets this amazing 20-year window. And I think it's probably a 20-year window, probably no longer. And then at the end of the 20-year window, we start merging with the technology itself, which is how does Neuralink, that kind of technology exists for the average person? You know, the, the idea of the bionic man, of can you have limbs that are stronger, faster, better, eyes that can see five miles in the distance, all of that stuff, it's all gonna be possible. And that's when we start merging with the machines, the homo deus idea. But there's another race going on. And I just look at my fridge and my stuff, the internet of things. And things that aren't human and you give them AI are prolific and they're everywhere. Yeah. And yeah. the robots with AI are prolific and they can speak to the things and the cars <laughs> and the planes and the everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we're, so we, we can kind of feel like it's two parallel paths. The, the machines are having a renaissance and humans are having a renaissance and we will end up, we'll come on to where they meet in a minute. But what do you think about that, that, that whole idea? Yeah, I mean, I, I think exactly that. We, we, we can build a world, you know, covered in sensors, relentlessly sending data to artificial intelligence which can crunch it we can build incredible we can build incredible and huge simulations essentially of the in uh, real-time simulations of the entire world i mean you look at what nvidia are doing with their earth 2 you know they're building a supercomputer to simulate the entire climate system and this interacts with the availability of computation and quantum computing because if we can simulate the entire Earth climate system, we can think about climate change and weather prediction in much more granular detail. But yes, we're about, you know, we can create a we can create a mirror world in virtual space based on exactly what you've talked about, objects that are smart, kind of an old-fashioned word now, but essentially enabled with sensors, enabled with artificial intelligence. And we can build we can build the entire world again in data and in virtual space that will allow us to do incredible things in that virtual space that have that are that offer us insight and information actionable knowledge that we can then apply to the real world and the climate system is one of those social dynamics is another one modeling how viruses move through the world would be a useful one before the next pandemic um, all of that is coming too and and exactly as you say robots you know and i loved your piece in gmi robots are demographics i think that is such a powerful insight robots are coming humanoid robots are coming and that interacts deeply with the transformer model large language model work we've been talking about you know i think i mentioned on the show and you mentioned it too google's google has a palm its large language model is doing incredible work in its everyday robots division to marry a large language model with a robot equipped with sensors so you have an AI that can understand natural language. In other words, we can talk to it and it can also take visual input from the sensors on the robot and make sense of that visual input. And you then have a walking and talking robot that can, you know, and the dream there is a robot finally where you can say, 
I've spilled my Coke and it knows you wanted to clean up the Coke. You know, do the dishwasher and it can walk into the kitchen and do the dishwasher. Um, it's proven incredibly hard to get to that kind of robot. But go and have a look at everyday robots. We're, we're, we're approaching that world. And that will be, again, I mean... And this is the same time, time that cars become robots with AI. Yeah. Because a car yeah. just takes you from A to B, assesses all of the risks and everything that needs to happen to get you to a particular place on time and driving and having driving licenses and all of this stuff will seem archaic. It's just a robot that picks you up, takes you to where you're going. Yeah, yeah, and as I've heard you talking about before, and, that, and that's almost incidental to what it's really doing, which is just, it's a rolling it's a rolling sensor or bundle of sensors, just constantly scraping the data from the physical environment around it, feeding it into what can be just a real-time, one-to-one virtual instantiation of, of the world that we keep in, in, in virtual space. I mean, New York City, live 24 seven in virtual space, everything that's happening. You know, every time this car passes a shop, it will communicate with that shop. Every time it passes a post spot, every time it does anything, that will be instantiated in data. And we can have a live real time version of the entire world inside a virtual space because these cars will be everywhere all the time collecting that data. Uh, and that, I mean, what's the value, you know, how many trillion dollar in like industry is that? It's, in it's, it's insane. And yeah, so the virtual world or the metaverse is where this is all going, right? This is where the complete seamless blend between the digital world and the physical world happens. Yeah. And we've got these parallel paths of this renaissance for humans, but I think a renaissance for machines, because it's going to happen that my car is going to tell my fridge that I'm coming home and the cooker, the fridge will order from Amazon the food that I need. And, you know, before you know it, it depends how fast that how smart the machines come, but it feels like another species ends up emerging from this. Yes, and yes. we either merge with them, or there's the battle of the species. I know this sounds ridiculous, and I was never this guy. No, it's so it, I mean, likewise, likewise, you know, I mean, it, it's <clears throat> at the outer edges of this are conclusions, like I said at the beginning, that I've come to extremely reluctantly. And when I say I've come to those conclusions reluctantly, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctantly, because of, because of a natural and legitimate skepticism, skepticism is a very important thing. You can't have your mind so open that it falls out, that your brain falls out. Your skepticism is extremely important, especially in these times. But I am, I am, I am gradually being persuaded that we're heading towards something of that nature. It's hard for me to see how we don't end up in a place where we've changed the nature of the human being, what it, what it is to be human. And it's very hard to make practical or moral sense of that. I think that is the key challenge of the age. Now, I've reluctantly come to the conclusion that that's, that's likely where we're heading. Whether or not that's a good or bad thing is, is in any case, a completely different question. It's not like I'm, I've reluctantly come to the conclusion it's happening and now I'm a cheerleader for it. It's, this is hugely, hugely challenging. Uh, but the more you believe it's hugely challenging, the more you believe surely that we should be thinking about it now. 
you know and we can we can uh, you're right like this it this is this is long run it's very out there it's very hard but to get Ray Kurzweil thinks it's not that long run I mean he's talking 30 years from now right yeah I mean I suppose yeah I mean sometimes I exist in a world of the next the next year the next two yeah thir to me 30 years is is long run enough like it, it, you know we're in very 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 tight cycles of change this isn't next year 30 years who the who the fuck knows what? Yeah, I mean, 30 years was that, when we all started getting home computers, right? Yeah. We can, yeah. Kind, of we can kind of remember that. Yeah, exactly. Now we've got yeah. generative AI and yeah. robotics. And in 30 years time, I, I worry we've created a machine species in its own right, which is driven by AI yeah. and it's augmented humans. And, yeah. you know, like every bloody sci-fi thing, the battle shall commence. Who yeah, exactly. I mean, 30 years ago, I was putting a cassette and most of the people watching this won't know what I'm talking about, but perhaps you do, Raoul. I was putting a cassette in my Commodore 64 and pressing play to load the machine, a game. Yeah, machine for 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 20 minutes later, if you were really lucky, you might have a game to play. Um, so, you know, 30 years from now, a lot about that is simply incomprehensible. Anyone who says otherwise you know, is kidding themselves. But we, we can look at very long-term, or we can look at powerful, put it another way, powerful structural shifts that, that give us an indication of where this is headed. Now, in terms of like bringing it back down to earth, if we're interested in doing that yet, maybe we'll come to that later. Like, what do you, where do you go with this? To, you know, I'm evolving thinking around, and this is something I'm writing about for GMI. Look, you either go to, if you're thinking about where to put money and, you know, you either you go to the foundation layer. You know, I loved that in in an essay of yours. You know, what drive, what 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 must you have for all of this? Energy, data, compute. Okay, so let's hold those three because they are they are crucial. What's left at the end of this long journey with that we're on with machine intelligence, where pretty much everything we define as work right now is being eaten by machines. Every procedural domain of human activity is being automated away by machine intelligence. What is left at the end of that is just one another, is just human beings. And this is where my framework does deeply inform my thinking again. Human beings, such as we are now, will always want other humans to see them. They'll always want to commune with the lived experience of other human beings. They, they, we need to be together. We need to feel seen by others. It doesn't matter how much machine intelligence can do for you and can automate away. There's something deeply so, important about that. So, so you I have the foundation layer, and then you have what's left at the end of this long road, which essentially I believe is entertaining one another, being with one another. And I thought about that, and I've looked at spending habits, and we, you know, we're headed in or are in a recession. But stuff like holidays have been going up. Interesting. And I yeah. think that, you know, you and I have never met, but we've spoken many, many times, and it's now normal for us to speak like this. I feel like I know you. I feel like we've met. Yeah. Right? There's a human connection just by doing this now. We're used to the digital realm. But I think humans still want that, that connectiveness, the interactivity. We're sociable creatures. So... What I'm seeing is we kind of get these pop-up social experiences. Holiday, 
you will spend a lot more money on your holiday now because you don't go to an office. You don't see as many people in your day to day. I think events, you know, we do these real vision events called meetups and we hold them in 12 cities around the world and 30, 40 people turn up because they just want to get together and talk yeah. to each other physically, share a bit, clink a glass, you know? And so I do think, and I also think nature trades at a premium because in a digital world where you can fake nature, there's something still about nature that's, that is an essence to the core human experience. So I'm trying to separate out these things and think, okay, what do humans really need for that social experience that can't be replicated in a digital world? And there's certain ones. I think we like dining together. Uh, even if we, if you and I had holograms and we're both having dinner at home, it's kind of still not the same. No, exactly. And all of that, all of that will happen, but it would just intensify the value, the perceived value of the quote unquote real thing. You know, when you commoditize, you know, when they, when you can have a million pairs of digital trainers and you can, you, you know, we can meet on a digital desert, a virtual desert island and have and have lunch in the metaverse and all of that. We'll, we'll do all of that, sure. Just like we're doing a lot of this, what we do now. And I agree, it does feel as though we've met. I'm losing track of who I've met like this and who I've actually met, which is insane. An um, irreducible core of value will exist around true human interaction. And, and like you say, you know, we're deeply social creatures that is hardwired into us. That's not going to go away. We'll always value as well the the um the sharing of you know felt lived experience so this idea that generative ai is the end of human creativity is is nonsense like we'll, we'll always want stories told by a human being who who lived that experience and is now telling you what it felt like to be a human going through that thing so, so human experiences you know being Ranulph fines or being bear grills they're uniquely human that tells a story of, of humanity and our interaction with our planet and stuff like that. Again, it kind of feels like that stuff becomes more and more important. Because I'm thinking, I want to bring it down into the current time, right? We're, we're saying the knowledge economy is going to be decimated, right? There are people being laid off from tech companies who may never get a job again. Now, can they start their own business quickly, do stuff because of all this technology? For sure. But the structure of the world is changing and maybe it leads to universal basic income. But there's also other opportunities here, which is maybe to lean into humanness. That things like hotels or travel experiences or even airlines. I know airlines have been thought of for business travel and we don't need business travel. But humans still want to experience the planet around them. So yeah. it feels like there's an opportunity in leaning in to two ways. You can either completely lean into the technology or completely do the opposite and lean into the most human element of all. That uh, that 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 framework is 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 one that's increasingly on my mind right now. I think it's that it's that soggy middle, so to speak, that where it gets very difficult, you know, and, and hundreds of millions of people who are just about to be disrupted by GPT-4, that, that it's going to be extremely difficult and painful. You know, if you are, and no, I don't mean this in any kind of disrespectful way, but if you're sort of a cog in the machine of McKinsey um, doing knowledge work in there that can now be done by GPT-4 or the next iteration when it comes, it, it's just extremely difficult. But if you're, if you're 
if you're doing the kind of knowledge work you do where people deeply care what what does Rao think about xyz you, you can't automate that way no 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 i'm no. not so sure that it doesn't People will still care what you think, however much information there is out there. And there's going to be so much information that they're going to want you, even if it gets to the point where they just want to sit with you to hear you say, what the fuck is happening? There's so much information. It's We need that. I'm not saying it won't change. The value that people like us offer won't change. It will change but people will want that kind of human connection. And um, so, yeah, you go you go that way or you go to the absolute foundations of this. What, what does all of this run on? What can we not do this without? Everything runs on energy, clearly energy. And as you've said before, and you've written before, you know, we're just, we're still in the beginnings of an incredible energy transition that has to happen, that is mandated by government, Everyone agrees on it. Solar has fallen, you know, 80% across the last day. The cost of solar installation, 80% across the last decade. The cheapest electricity ever. It's essentially going to fall to free, I believe. You know, we'll, we'll get to a world where electricity is free because the amount of sunlight falling on the planet is ridiculous that we're still charging for electricity. And people, what's, people get Go stuck that. with this, right? Because people think it's a political statement because they get stuck in fossil fuels. We must keep... The technology is not there at scale to do this yet, but the rate of acceleration of the technology due to the government investment is exponential. Yeah. And whether it's nuclear, whether it's nuclear fission, whether it's solar, whether it's geothermal, whether it's wind, whether it's a combination of all or something else. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, look at, you know, modular nuclear reactors, you know, we're, we're, I'm always writing about fusion, you know, they're really interesting advances happening with nuclear fusion. It's still some way off, but modular, small nuclear reactors, fusion reactors, eventually, that's going to come online, and we're going to have infinite, <laughs> infinite nuclear energy. But there's a there's a there's a road to trap, there's an investor, I mean, you know, about that side of it much more than me, but there's an investable road to travel across energy for the next you know, two, three, four decades. We have to transition. We're going to. That journey is investable. The other thing is compute. You know, who we all of this runs on compute, on computational power. You know, I mean, I'm increasingly thinking we're we're moving from a world where the the banks were the organizations that were too big to fail. Okay. You cannot, you could not have bank failure by like even now, but in a decade or two, certainly, who's too big to fail? The providers of compute. We cannot allow um, the, the diminishing power of Moore's law to catch up with us. You're right, we can keep it in train till the mid-2030s. Then it starts to look very shaky because, the th because you can't stop these things overheating anymore. We're reaching the physical limits. So we then need quantum computing to rise up to meet that challenge. If it doesn't, we have severe productivity challenges, severe challenges across the board. I don't believe we're going to let that happen. So there's going to be huge investment in moving quantum computing along, I, I believe. Now, so if people are investing in compute now, that's AWS and Azure, it's Microsoft and Amazon and, and, then, and then the chip manufacturers like the, the the semiconductor index, NVIDIA, ASML, all of this stuff. And that's that's very basic, but 
it makes total sense. I mean, there is a small little gap of which every single thing needs to use a silicon chip. <laughs> yeah. For starters. And everything needs to go into cloud storage. Yes, we can have distributed computing power. We'll see vast distributed networks at some point. Maybe even um, Starlink will have distributed computing power in space. I think we'll see it in space. But feels pretty obvious. There's a lot of these big people that, that accrue everything. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And and this kind of thinking it does lead you to a certain extent back to the usual suspects. I mean, who's doing amazing things in in quantum computing? Um, Google, once again, Google. our old friends Google. You know, I mean, uh, uh, this this news was slightly well, it wasn't slightly. It was totally uh, kind of washed away by all the GPT four excitement. But Google just announced an extremely interesting advance in quantum computing in a research paper you know five six days ago that's about error correction of of qubits you know so instead of working with a bit which can only be one or zero quantum computing works with qubits which are much more complex they can exist in many different states rather than just two and that enables far faster computation but the problem is they're very very error they're error prone and they have to be kept incredibly cold at the moment. So there are significant challenges, but yet very, very interesting work, breakthrough work in terms of error correction when it comes to working with qubits. And if we unlock this, if we unlock quantum computing, it's going to just blow away what we can do with computation yeah. right now. And I think it was Mo Gordat's point was that the moment we have quantum computing and AI, we're all fucked. <laughs> I mean, it's just... Because the computational power of the AI is now so vastly superior to all human forms of any intelligence ever created that we don't stand a chance. And I think it was, he, he was pointing out, I think Noah Harari, Ray Kurzweil, is all pointing out, hey, listen, by the time you get to that point, the average AI is something like 10,000 times, 10,000 times more intelligent than the most intelligent human that's ever lived. <laughs> so it's like the difference between Einstein and a goldfish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and that is why I work right now to try to figure out how, if we're going to build something like that, how we keep it in some kind of box, how we put guardrails around it, how we align it with human values, is so important but i must say that work is 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 bedeviled by serious problems because humans have never been able to agree a set of values among ourselves anyway let alone that's why we have alone. different religions exactly you know, yeah you know so good good luck i mean what set of values exactly uh, and and you know this is where um Imad is so Imad, you know, the brilliant interviews you've done with him are so, so interesting. People must go and watch those interviews if they haven't already. Incredible, incredible. But this is where, you know, his fundamental position is so is so interesting and I think so valuable. Look, if this world is coming, then we need to empower everyone with it because the the problem of fundamentally opposing human values and ways of life is eternal. It's not going away. And so people should be able to build their own AI models with the, in, the, that reflect and instantiate their own different sets of values. If we just create one kind of AI overlord with a Californian set of values, you know, I love those guys, a lot of them are my friends, but we, you know, that's not, that's probably not the world we want. Um, so politics is becoming technology. But your, but your point is that 
I mean, they can't even regulate Web 2. No, 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 we're not. It's not going to come from it's not going to come from government. So, so you know, and I, I know, again, I don't want to get too high flown and I don't want to I don't want to go into the to the realms of ideology necessarily or politics, but politics is about to radically change the, the way we do it is at the moment is not making contact with the true drivers of our shared destiny and the the true the, the structural forces that are reshaping society it's like it's like a sort of wheel that's no longer it's like a cog that's no longer touching the other cog it's spinning and spinning frantically and it creates a huge amount of noise and it's what we watch on CNN and Joe Biden just said this and that. but it it really is not making any any material real difference to the future we're going to meet 10, 20 years down the line. Tech, that, that future is being shaped by people in technology companies and increasingly by technology, which has kind of forces and directions of travel all of its own. How do we start to get our head around that collectively and decide where we want to go? And that, And I think, so I also think, look, typically human beings don't get through this kind of mass disruption without wars happening there i've gone and said it i mean if you want me if you if you want me to prove that i'm not the wide-eyed utopian you know did, did that but that, the question that, is is who is, the, disruption. who is the war between because i'm thinking it's less sovereign war okay fine we're always going to have frictions between rising superpowers i fear that the war is actually the cultural war that's being fought across the internet every day the, the same war that just brought down Silicon Valley Bank, the way to mobilize a hive mind, turn it into a mob instantaneously to coalesce values in this digital world in ways that were not possible before. And it's not yeah. possible to bring, it's not like a protest in Hyde Park where the police can turn up and say, hey, calm down everyone. It can happen like this. There are no police online. It just happens. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, I think that's right. No, I don't, I don't think that, I don't think the most relevant war is likely to be an old-fashioned land war between sovereign states anymore, not at all. And this goes back to, you know, another of your great uh, theses, you know, around the, 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 the falling value of fiat currency. You know, if I understand you correctly, essentially the, the increasing irrelevancy of fiat money, um, you know, what, what deep underlying forces underpin that? If I, if I understand, your position on it correctly. In my view, you know, one of the deep, deep underlying forces that underpins it is just declining relevance of sovereign government. You know, money is money is a form of value in the end guaranteed by sovereign governments. Sovereign and it's government a belief system. It's are a losing belief. control. Do you believe in the state, the yeah. state you live in? But because we can also live in different states now. Like I can live in the Ethereum state. Right. And it has it looks right. very much like a global sovereign state, but without a sovereign head. Now, money is just a belief system. If humans say, we don't believe the US dollar is valuable anymore, or we don't believe gold is, it will be thus. Yeah, It's as simple yeah. as that. And these cultural wars, um, I don't know if you've been following Balaji online, basically yes. saying Bitcoin's going to go to a million because of response. Even, I don't think he really believes that it is, but the point being is what he's saying is we can affect change by turning this hive mind into a mob and moving across to a parallel system. And if we decide your currency is worthless, it is worthless because we ascribe value. Value is not a, law, a scientific law, it's a mental state.
Yeah, yeah, it, it, exactly that. And I think, and I think the 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 function by which people decide money isn't valuable anymore or lose trust in it is because they they start to see, even though they won't articulate it to themselves necessarily, they start to see that government is not in the driving seat of our decade on decade future. That other forms of community, um, you know, often mediated by blockchains are what are going to bring people together and mediate relationships and mediate transfers of value in that future. And, and in, in that future where government's just kind of spinning its wheels and not really having an impact, you start then to question, you know, the value of this uh, of this dollar amount you have in your account that in the end is backed by this thing called the US government that sort of starting to it starts to feel that it's losing losing control. Again, you know, we're talking longer run and it's very, very hard to make sense of this but it deeply needs to be thought about. But how is, um, just a final note, and this is too long, I mean, obviously we could talk about this for like 16 hours and we will do many more discussions on different parts of this, but we're at this point where trust is breaking down. It's kind of, I don't know if you've read the book, The Fourth Turning. Yeah. I mean, I endlessly reread it for the last couple of chapters, which is basically this whole thing. Trust has broken down it's splintering into online digital societies outside of the physical society we live in. We have the political system is now so far apart that everybody's blaming each other. And then in the middle of it, you say, oh, you guys who drive cars and trucks, you're out of a job. You guys who do anything else, you're out of a job from AI. Oh, by the way, you Amazon workers, you're out of a job. There's no government, to your point, that's actually thinking this through. So society is, and meanwhile, the purchasing power of currencies are going down. I mean, that is a horrific set of outcomes. Now, I do believe there is ability to solution this and we can leverage this renaissance. But it's, but if we fuck this up, I mean, as you said, war is the outcome and it's the war against the people. The, yeah, exactly. The, the disruption coming down the track, you know, multiple disruptions smashing into one another, just swinging hard to process changes to what work even is across the board. Like you say, whether you're in a warehouse, whether you're driving a truck, whether you're whether you're, you know, on your way to being partner at kind of Mishkondorea in the city of London, you know, do it, you know, as a lawyer, how do we make sense of that? The next few decades are going to, or you know, the next decade, decade and a half, it's going to just be deeply, deeply turbulent, and it's very hard to make sense of where it lands. Um, I, I mean, I'm so mindful as we speak that we have an audience here that wants this to be investable. There are clear, there are clear investable journeys through this, but be thinking about what it means for you. Be thinking about where this is heading, kind of medium to long term, because it's 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 inspiring but terrifying in equal measure. You know, I do feel. I mean, I we picked a great time to be people who look at the world and try to make sense of it because it's never been more interesting. Um, but I'm sure there's a famous Chinese proverb about that somewhere. Um, you know, it's also terrifying, and if we fuck it up. You know, what with where, where we started at the beginning of this conversation, what with the merging of humans with technology, it feels like a sort of end game definitive fuck up. I don't want to be a, you know, I feel you've forced me into a doomster position now. 
it, but it, it there feels something kind of end game in that. It feels like there's a chance we lose touch profoundly with what was valuable about human beings and human life. And if it's gone, then it's gone. It's, it's very I mean, hard look, to make sense of. So I think in summary, both of us are vastly optimistic about the technology. We probably both think the next 20 years is an extraordinary time to be alive. It will it come is. with a lot of societal issues, but generally people should live longer, be more productive, probably have more per capita income. We will see changes to climate science. We will see changes to energy. You know, it will take a lot of people out of poverty in third world countries. So it's amazing, but really hard at the same time because society is going to get fractured as we try and rebuild a new society for this new digital age. And then after that, we don't know. And the issue is, I don't think we can stop it. No, I, I don't think anyone's in the driving seat. I think we can't stop it. I think that characterization is <clears throat> is broadly right. I think extension, or it's going to be incredible. All the benefits you talked about will accrue to billions or hundreds of millions of people. They simply will not accrue to hundreds of millions or billions of others at all or in the same way. You have a lengthening then of inequalities, you know, across you know, economic inequalities, intellectual, creative inequalities that will set people against one another. And all the time, the clock is ticking towards this sort of material, significant merging of humans with technology that that it's hard to see as anything other than a profound new chapter for human beings. When if we're then on a planet where there's more than one type of human, how do you how do you accommodate that? And how do we build accommodations between groups in new ways? Incredibly difficult questions to make sense of. Yeah, and I've been going down this rabbit hole, started with cynicism, started with like, yeah, this is all nonsense, and then went deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole, and I kind of got to the same conclusions of you and the inevitability of all of this. And so I just thought back philosophically and thought, okay, what do I do about this? So I can either shake my fists at the sky and say, it's all terrible, this is never going to happen, or <laughs> you can invest in it and make some money out of it and hope that humanity is inventive enough to figure out ways that, because everyone asks the same question and you, you've written about this. What are my kids going to do? Yeah. Right? Exactly. And the answer is we don't know, right? There is no answer. I can't make anybody happy, but I'm, my guess is your kids will go through an extraordinary time where they're almost augmented humans with superpowers. So it's their kids I'd worry about, not, your kids. Um, so I think it's investable. And I think we can all embrace it in our lives to become augmented and our businesses to become augmented. And after that, we just have to figure it out. We just have to keep our radars up, keep monitoring it and see which way. If not, we might have to join Elon Musk and piss off to Mars because the AI <laughs> taken over the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I think what we're going to need is, a, is ways of building accommodations between groups of people who who um, have varying degrees of willingness and ability to, to invest, and I use that term in its broadest sense, to, to participate, to be involved in this technology revolution. So you're gonna have some people who, who want to merge with technology and want to become essentially cyborgs. You're gonna have others who don't, people who want to live across the spectrum of technological advancement. 
We're not very good at that at the moment. It feels as though modernity is just this massive one-way highway, everyone strapped in, just whooshing towards the final destination. We need to allow exit routes off, and we need to allow those different kinds of groups of people to live peacefully with one another. Good luck. That is a 500-year project. We evolved liberalism to deal with a problem of that order that was that was founded in religious difference. I think the difference now is going to be founded in technological difference. Okay, but the, but what is valuable in liberalism that we can bring forward is is simply this idea of how do we find ways to live peacefully with one another. And yeah, like what what should I teach my children is the number one question I get asked when I speak at events now. You know, resilience and creativity and care for one another is what's at the end of this journey of machine intelligence. And this is one of the reasons that I ended up building a house in Little Cayman, an island of 150 people, where literally none of this matters. Yeah, so amazing. There are off-ramps. There are places and, and nature is that off-ramp. So if you don't want to be involved or you need a counterbalance, just think of nature. Nature is the friend here. Go to places where there's less humans and less technology, where technology doesn't matter, where you grow your own vegetables, stuff like that. It's kind of game changing because you can opt out and you can live. We can have a multi-speed world. Yeah. We just need to allow that to happen, as you say. That's exactly right. A multi-speed world, I think, is exactly exactly where this could land in a good place. But get it. And I, I truthfully, I believe we will get there. I think humans find a way, but I think the journey there is likely to be incredibly bumpy at the level of, you know, systemic global shocks, wars, and so on, because we're talking about profoundly disruptive forces here. But a multi-speed world is, is where this could land, and it could be a beautiful place. And I think you're exactly right. Nature and uh, perhaps blockchains as well. You know, if you participate, if you can participate in what's about to happen or what is happening with blockchain with currencies on the blockchain that is a way of insulating yourself against some of this disruption because just as you've said we're we're still near the beginning of this incredible adoption curve this transition to an entirely new system of value transfer um if you participate in that that can help insulate you against some of the disruption that is coming and look you can you can participate in that while living in nature it might be the ideal combination actually um you know blockchains in nature may be the way to go <laughs> david look amazing conversation i'm sure we'll have many more and looking forward to seeing more of you on real vision thank you for having me it's been a, it's been a pleasure okay i mean there is a ludicrous amount in this video and there's a lot for people to take in there's a lot of doom, there's a lot of positivity, there's talk of renaissance, there's talk of hiding in small Caribbean islands, there's talk of augmented humans, there's talk of AGI and, and um, artificial intelligence being smarter than the average human, there's talk of the robots. There's a lot here and it's hard for us to all process, but I think you've now seen with the revolution that's just happened in AI, that this is not going to stop. And within five years, our cars will drive us. Our factories will be only robots. Our warehouses will be robots. Many of the, the servers will be robots. 
we will have technology everywhere. Our Internet of Things devices will communicate with each other using artificial intelligence. All of these things are going to happen. We're going to edit the human genome like it's a software program. And these aren't on the horizon. These are happening right now. So we will go through this period of time of such staggering disruption that we're going to spin to get our heads around it. So anyway, we're going to try and help you in that journey. This is what this whole exponential age is all about. We'll try and help you navigate it, find the pitfalls, and David will be one of our guides. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Just a reminder, the Real Vision Daily Briefing is in partnership with the Gold Investment Letter, helping sophisticated investors successfully navigate capital markets and maximize profits in gold, silver, and mining stocks. GIL discovers the most undervalued companies and isolates special situations in the mining sector for their members, breaking down unique topics such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends with a goal of drastically improving investment returns. Sign up for this free e-letter for immediate action, goldinvestmentletter.com.